Yom Kippur tonight, the beginning of this most holy day of the year for millions and millions of people. And I think it's a beautiful time for us to be on retreat at a time when in the the mass field of the earth there are millions of people all over the earth in temples and in their homes doing this very brave, uh, very beautiful work of examining their heart, very sincere practice. In the spirit of Yom Kippur, I have a little quote for you. The Hasidic rabbi altar taught that each child comes into the world with the word life inscribed on their heart by God's own hand. As each year goes on, this life spirit is gradually covered over with grit and regret by lack of silence and prayer, by our speed and confusion. Thus we begin the new year by a holy cleansing of the heart with silence, forgiveness, and prayer so that the divine spirit of life can shine through again. And really that's what we're doing here also. Different paths, different religions have different way of doing this very important work. The Buddha once said that liberation is like a great bird and that the bird has two wings. One is wisdom and one is compassion. And he said if the wisdom is developed but there's no compassion, the bird will be very wise but it will never fly. And if the compassion is developed but there's no wisdom, it can be a very loving, kind bird but it will never fly. But if we fully develop both of these aspects, wisdom and compassion, then we can experience this possibility of liberation. So in our practice, we develop wisdom through insight meditation, through learning to see clearly what is so, what is real, what is true. And wisdom arises from that. And tonight, on Yom Kippur, I want to talk about the other wing of the bird, how we can learn about and bring compassion more into our life and into our world. And I'll probably mention the Dalai Lama a lot because he's probably the most, um, not only the most famous, but the most inspiring embodiment of the teachings of compassion and forgiveness that is alive on this earth today because of his heroic way that he's been dealing with his relationship to the Chinese. So in a recent book of his that came out several months ago called Ethics for a New Millennium, the Dalai Lama said that the, what humanity needs if we want to survive, if we want to continue, he said we need empathy, which was a word he used. It's very, he's meaning also compassion. Empathy, this ability to feel with others. And he talks about we have to learn 
to feel with others, especially those who are different. He said different cultures, different religions, different races, and particularly, he said, we must learn to feel with, have empathy for people who live in different conditions. It's really, it's like a simple, obvious teaching, but it's so true and so profound. Because without empathy, without this capacity to care about your conditions, you can become other. And when you are other, I can do I can do anything to other if the earth or someone else is another, then you can create harm. But when we're us, we take care of us. So this empathy he calls um, a necessity for our future. And of course, another word for empathy is compassion. Um, in the dictionary, Webster says, compassion is the sympathetic concern for the suffering of another, although Buddhism doesn't mean just another. It means self or other. Together with the inclination to give aid, support, and show mercy. The Buddha describes compassion as the quivering of the heart in response to pain, yourself or someone else's pain. So compassion is our capacity to feel connected, to feel with, to care for. Compassion, with passion. I'll be with you in your experience. A couple nights ago, the night before I came on this retreat, I had dinner with a good friend who just got back from a um, hair-raising pilgrimage and trek in Ladakh, and he told me this story. While he was uh, on his way, before he started going on the trek part, the last city that he was in, in Ladakh, was called Leh. And he had, for some reason, he made friends with a very devout Buddhist man and ended up going over to his home and meeting his family and was very moved by the warmth of this family. Very simple, very poor people. And um, my friend Gary thought, when I'm back from the trek, I am going to come back and visit these people. They're very beautiful people. And he went off to have his adventure, to have his spiritual experience. He had his spiritual experience, all right. Um, He almost died of altitude sickness at 18,000 feet. And when you're that far out in the middle of nowhere in a third world country, it isn't like there's a helicopter or an ambulance. It was a long, life-threatening saga to finally get him back to this man's jeep somewhere on a trail where he was riding along. Finally, he was back in Ley. He was by himself. He was so sick he could barely move or talk. And he was in a jeep with a man who not only could he not speak to, but he didn't know. He was so out of it he just asked to be taken to the, these people's home. That's the only people he knew in this city. So he went there and was dropped off, this family, who, of course, immediately saw that he was so sick they took him to the hospital. And he actually developed more complications while he was in the hospital. But 
this family took him on as one of their own. They'd met him for a few hours a week before. Every morning, the first thing in the morning, the man, the father of the family, would ride across the city on his bicycle bringing the homemade soup that his wife got up very early and made for Gary. Then the man would sit with him for hours, and when he had to leave to go to his job at the bank, another family member would come. And they stayed with him, they sat with him, and he had times of violent illness. And he said, they cared for me like you would care for your family member. Then, when he was well enough, they took him home when he was able to leave the hospital, because as you know, to be in a hospital in Ladakh is also life-threatening. <laughs> so um, it's six days in that hospital, and he, he survived that. So the, this family took him home. And the grandmother, the grandfather, the kids, the teenagers, the mother and father, everybody were part of taking care of him until he was well enough to leave. And so when Gary was telling me this story the other night, um, he said it wasn't the blessings of the High Lamas that he had on his trek. It wasn't meditating in Padmasambhava's cave. It wasn't even the near-death experiences. He said the spiritual teaching of this pilgrimage was to be the recipient of what he called nuclear kindness. He said, it um, demolished me. He said, I was not prepared and had never even imagined that there was that kind of compassion and kindness. And these people were, are, um, they're poor people. The man works full-time, his wife works full-time, the grandmother and grandfather work all day, and the teenagers work. All of that to live at what we would consider below the poverty line. Their water that they use is outdoors and down the street. You know, they have, in our standards, nothing. However, they have everything. And in, in a one way, they have so much love and kindness. And we hear these stories about um, things. They tend to happen in different cultures, unfortunately. Um, and they, for me, they always touch my heart. Uh, because this kind of kindness and compassion is the language that we all understand. It crosses every boundary. We all need it. And the reason that we can all feel it, when we feel a story like that, is that the seed of nuclear kindness, of great compassion, is in every one of our hearts. It's part of our own essential nature. And we know that even though this great heart of kindness and compassion is inside of each of us, we don't always feel completely in touch with it. At least I don't. Most people don't. Part of that, the reason for that is that it's hard to face suffering. 
the heart of compassion is connected with suffering and it's hard to face it i mean even tonight it, we could make a list so so quickly of the parents with alzheimer's or the loneliness or the aids orphans or you know or the stuff that's going on with oppression and racism or we could just make lists and lists and sometimes it's hard to face all the suffering that goes on that's part of life that's part of every day in every life even harder than facing suffering is opening to suffering yet that opening to this suffering is part of our path to freedom part of part of what is asked of us Compassion asks us to open our heart in the face of suffering. And when we do, when we sit, we learn right so directly that resistance to pain increases pain. How many people have had a moment of learning that here, you know? Except how often do we keep doing it? We keep doing resistance again. And when we finally open, allow, ourself to be touched by sorrow or difficulty that's here anyway there's actually a relief that's when the medicine the flow of this tremendous force of compassion can happen when we stop resisting the pain of life we had a beautiful reading by Rilke last night and we get another one tonight Let not even one of the clearly struck hammers of my heart fail to sound because of a slack, a doubtful or ill-tempered string. Let my joyfully streaming face make me more radiant. Let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair, how we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage, Ponds, meadows, our inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. So in this, he's such a profound way of saying these things, in this piece, we can feel this different relationship to pain this possibility of opening rather than closing to the nights of sorrow, to the anguish. So, of course, we know that compassion cannot remove the inevitable sorrows and losses of life. Of course it can't. But, Compassion can bring us home to ourself. 
can bring us home into the ocean of love that connects everything. A story, uh, a Dharma student that I worked with over a period of years, she's been meditating for a long time, uh, years before her little beautiful infant baby girl died. And of course she went through this you know, the, the incredible process one has to go through to deal with that. But about a year later, in talking with me, because she'd been seeing me regularly over that period, she said, you know, um, I had heard that teaching about impermanence, and I actually thought I got it. She said, you know, that was a joke. She said, now I get it, that loss is woven in to every life, without exception. And she said, sometimes when I really get that, it is so frightening that I consciously choose to try and close down to it. She said, I can actually, sometimes I unconsciously close, she said, but sometimes I actually try to just say, no, I don't want to feel that fact, thank you. And she said, what happens then is I become hard and cold and isolated and alone. And invariably, I go back to my practice and I allow the pain to break my heart open again. She said, that's basically the process she was in, fighting against this and opening to it. And she said, of course, when, when she was just open to it, there's less suffering. She said that since this baby died, she experienced more pain than she had ever known was possible. She also said she had experienced and received more kindness and compassion than she ever knew was in this world. She said, now when someone else grieves, I grieve. I'm, I'm with them. If someone else celebrates, I'm with them. I don't feel alone anymore. So it's an extraordinary setup here on planet Earth where every life um, we're guaranteed this first noble truth. There will be dissatisfaction, loss, and suffering. But also, part of the extraordinary setup on this particular planet is that we all also have the capacity to hold the whole thing in our heart. That our mind actually can't quite get around all the suffering, but the heart can hold it all. So through suffering, through facing suffering and difficulty, compassion can deepen, and our sense of connection with each other and with all beings can deepen. That's sort of the only possible good news about suffering. I was once with a friend and teacher, Stephen Levine, a friend of ours, and uh, he was sort of talking about this idea that, you know, through suffering, um, your compassion can deepen. And then he, and by the way, I want to say, if you don't know Stephen, if you haven't heard him speak or read his books, he tends to be very eloquent and very poetic. And says sort of profound things, and he's very quotable. And so he's talking about compassion, 
growing out of suffering. And then he stops. He says, but don't get me wrong. He said, I don't want to glorify suffering. He said, suffering sucks. (laughs) So in his very eloquent way, he said what we all know. We're not trying to pretend, oh, isn't it great I'm suffering? No. We're just trying to learn how to work with it. So, and I, I know we've all experienced this, that when a loving mother or friend or parent holds a very frightened child, the child relaxes, opens up. And when we learn to be held, to, to hold ourselves in compassion, our contractions open and we can unfold into a whole new wholeness, a whole new kind of peace. Another story, um, Jack and I were teaching out at Vicitos and a Native American woman told me this story. She was a Chippewa woman. She said, uh, long ago, during the Irish potato famine, somehow the Chippewa people who were at that time living, and I'm afraid probably still are living in real poverty, but at that time, as we know, American history, the Chippewa people had lost everything. You know, every kind. They'd lost their land, their language, their religion, their dignity. And they were living in abject poverty. And they heard about what was going on in Ireland with the potato famine. And they gathered their tribe together because they knew what it felt like to be hungry. They knew what it felt like to be very afraid and have no friends, to be lost. They gathered their tribe and everyone who had any U.S. dollars put them together and they raised almost 300 American dollars, which at that time was everything they had. And they sent it to Ireland, to a charity. And somehow the word of this got out in an Irish newspaper. And of course the people of Ireland were so moved because they knew that the Native Americans were, had nothing, yet they gave everything. So a special bond formed between these two groups, the Chippewa and these uh, Irish immigrants. And the, the woman who told me the story said a number, many Irish immigrants, found their way all the way to the place where the Chippewa were living, and that's where they made their home. And to this day, they have special friendships. They have parades and picnics, and they help each other in projects. All of that came, it started with the enormous suffering of the Chippewa people and how that opened their heart to compassion and generosity. Another story, my um, dear brother, Rick, died a few years ago. He was at, well, how do I tell you who he was? Uh, on one level, I could say he was this very fast-moving, successful, uh, wildly funny attorney, um, loving his life, climbing you know the, the ladder of the power elite, and, and loving his five-star you know life with all its trimmings, making lots of jokes. You know Deborah, the sort of spiritual meditator, backpacker type, and and Rick, and we were actually very close, and he was so funny that he loved making lots of jokes about me and my lifestyle. 
he would say things like, you're going to do what for 20 days? This is your vacation, Deborah? You know, just, he just loved to play with the whole thing. But he had never, um, never in any way that I saw, had he looked inward and had never, he'd been out on the surface and very much enjoying that life. Um, he lived that life until he began to die of AIDS. And he was 44 years old, uh, really at the peak of things. And I had to tell him that our mutual friend of more than 20 years, Bob, had died that day. And I'd already, you know, Rick and I had already been through so many deaths because of the AIDS epidemic. Um, I assumed that he would remain in his sort of guarded place against that. He had stopped going to funerals of friends at number 100. Can you, I mean, we can't even comprehend it. He just hardened to that whole thing. So um, when I told him about Bob dying that day, I didn't expect what happened. He just got quiet. But he'd been suffering. This is the difference. He'd been in the hospital. He'd been sick. He'd been in pain. And I told him about Bob. And he got really quiet. And then tears, which I had never seen, began to run down my brother's face. And he said, Oh, my God, his mother, Beth. He said, she is such a beautiful woman. And now she lost two sons and her husband in a period of 15 months. And my brother was just crying with the heart of compassion. He was letting the suffering of another into his heart. And as he was doing this, he began telling me about Beth. He said, when we were teenagers... You know, gay in Southern California, which is a, at that time in the 50s, not an easy path. He said, she accepted us. She celebrated who we were. He said, she was such a beautiful woman. He was crying, what can I do for her? What, Deborah, I'm too sick. Will you go help her? You know, just concerned. And as he felt for this woman, he began, his heart was opening, and he began, it, it was, he was letting it in. What about our mother? He was going to be dying really soon. How would she handle this? And he finally let that in, the grief of that. And then, as he let that in, and and our father, the the sort of dam broke. And he just, for the first time, I'm sure ever in this life, he felt that great heart of compassion. He became aware of all the people in the hospital, and all the other relatives, and all the loss. He was just weeping for the suffering, and it was compassion. And finally, he felt compassion for himself, that he was, that he was suddenly coming to the end of this life, and it wasn't exactly the most comfortable thing to go through. The beautiful thing about this story is that Rick, um, I think only because he was dying, remained open. That wall never went back up. So for the last few months of his life, he was, he was the same Rick. He had this incredible humor till the end. But he was, he was compassionate and kind. So he had all this, all this going at once. So I'd just like you to notice for a minute 
I just told you a story, a true story, about um, my brother dying, about this woman, Beth, who's a real woman, who lost her husband and her children in a very short time. I want you to notice, just let your awareness go inside for a minute, and notice, when you hear this, what happens inside of you? With no judgment, you might feel compassion for Beth or for my brother. You might feel that care for their suffering. That may be what you're experiencing. You might feel not much, or you might feel sort of numb. No judgment, just noticing. Sometimes we hear these sorts of things, we hear about the suffering in the world, and it's too much, it's overwhelming. We already have plenty of suffering. So if we feel overwhelmed by sorrow, we can work with the equanimity meditation. Very powerful to balance out just being overwhelmed. And the equanimity meditation says, each being is the owner of their own karma. It says, I care for your suffering, but I cannot take it. I cannot carry it for you. I can't take it from you. So you can feel sort of the equanimity in there. So that's one way to work if you're feeling overwhelmed. When you hear this story about the woman who lost her family or about my brother, uh, you also might feel pity, which is called the near enemy of compassion. It can look like compassion. It can be real close, but it, it isn't compassion. It has fear in it. It has other in it. Sort of, I'll exaggerate, sort of that, that poor, pitiful woman, that awful thing happened to her. Of course, it would never happen to me. You feel that sort of pity puts a little distance in that poor one. Compassion is with. It's, that is my mother. In fact, that's my own story. Compassion isn't separate. Compassion recognizes I'm not other than that one who's poor in Ladakh or that woman. I feel her pain. The reason that compassion, the heart of compassion can do this is because we are all so vulnerable. That's just the truth. Regardless of our race or our nationality, if we're rich or poor, we all have complete impermanence in common. Every single one of us um, share the capacity to love and to lose love and the capacity to cultivate compassion in the midst of it all. So I'd like you, if you would, don't change your position, but if you just close your eyes for a moment. And if you are having a hard time hearing me, could you raise your hand? Okay. So... Compassion talk, you need several boxes, I think. Mm. 
Yeah, this is important. So please close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, if you would, for a moment, please bring into your heart and your mind this woman who I told you about, Beth, who a few years ago, at that time, she was in her middle 70s, so now she's in her late 70s, lost her two sons and her husband. I don't know how she's doing. But I'd like you to just Think of her for a moment. Hold her in your heart. And see if you can find a place of care in your heart. A place where you can allow yourself to be touched by her sorrow. You don't have to be overwhelmed but to allow your heart to be touched by her losses. And silently, wherever she may be, feel your heart, silently send this message. I care about your sorrows. I care about what you've been through. May you be held in that great web of compassion. May you come to peace with your life circumstances. May you heal and may this life experience lead you a great sense of connection and compassion for all. As you touch this experience of caring for what another has been through, it's called karuna, or the Brahma-vihara of compassion. You can open your eyes. So this, very simply, is the practice of compassion, where we actually allow, in a way that's not overwhelming, ourselves to be aware of either some of our own suffering or the suffering of someone else. Maybe we know them, maybe, like Beth, it's a total stranger. And we send these wishes from our heart. I care about your sorrow. May you be free of suffering. You send the, the kindness, the best wishes from your heart. In that way, we intentionally cultivate compassion. It's important also, right now since we just did that little meditation, to notice the effect of compassion. When you do compassion meditation, just notice what its effect is. It may bring a sense of openness or vulnerability or, uh, again, like I said, it may, it may be a lot and you may have to work with equanimity. 
but part of it is that we keep working with mindfulness and awareness to be sure that we remain in, in balance. Another story, I have a lot of stories. Maybe this one won't make you cry as much. This is a story about how we might use compassion in the context of our intensive practice, insight meditation here at this retreat. A couple months ago, I was teaching a 10-day retreat, and a man came who'd done a number of retreats. He was in the middle of a very complicated, long, very, very painful divorce. And he, after a couple days of sitting, began to be overrun by feelings of guilt and shame. He would be sitting, trying to be present, and he was just being flooded with memories of all these situations where he was somehow demanding or critical or cold. And of of course, this was very strongly in his judgment. um, So he was judging himself to be that. And a little of that goes a long way, as we all know. I mean, this isn't new. We, we all have experiences of this, but this was a very intense dose. Um, and there's a difference between taking self-responsibility, seeing what was my part in the situation, and self-hatred. Self-responsibility is actually quite healing. Self-hatred makes more pain. It keeps us more caught in the in the pain. And he was hammering himself with judgment and self-hatred. He was just swamped with this really heavy feeling that the the pain his kids were going through and his ex-wife was all his fault in his mind. And of course, on one level, we all know nothing is ever all one person's fault. That's not how it works. But when you're really caught, and he was caught, It feels that way. Um, He's a very dedicated practitioner, and he really was working with this, and he was trying to note. He was trying to be mindful. He would try to bring mindfulness of the body and notice what are the sensations. He would try to let go. He would try to go to his breath. I mean, he was really... trying to work with this, working hard, but uh, finally he came up to me. It was so sort of sweet. He, he didn't put his note on the board. He walked up to me and handed me the note, just for your, you know, it's okay to go up and actually tap me, but he handed me a note, may we talk. So um, he told me that everything he was trying, with everything he was trying, he could not catch the thread of mindfulness. He was completely identified and caught, entangled in this story, and he knew it. He couldn't, he couldn't find any, any center. So I, listening to him and the kind of suffering he was in, I said, well, um, it's time for the medicine, the antidote of compassion. And his, you might be able to guess his first reaction to that he resisted. Because when you're hating yourself, you don't really want to or feel compassion for yourself. He said, no, that won't work. 
you know, I said, well, let's do compassion for your kids, which he could easily feel. Of course, it always wanted to slip from compassion to guilt, but we, we pulled back. And then we talked about him doing compassion practice and sent him back into the meditation hall. Then the next part I'm going to tell you about is what he told me later. He went and he did two sittings, um, just compassion for himself. And it took quite a while for him to begin to sort of open up to it. But finally he was being able to connect, you know, compassion for this, um, this one who was in so much suffering. Compassion to the man who had been actually trying hard to support his family, starting a new business, and was tired a lot and grouchy a lot. Compassion to that one who had tried hard and still had a sad ending. Compassion to how frightened he was of being alone. He was finding moments and little ways to finally hold himself in some kindness. And what really, he said, um, opened, was like the key that opened for him, was when he just felt compassion to my human mistakes. It's forgiveness. It's Yom Kippur. Compassion. I messed up. I did. Compassion to how that happened. He said, I was actually trying, and I did it that badly. So the compassion opened him. It untangled the knots, and he was able, after two sittings, of using the compassion as antidote, as medicine, to go back into the mindfulness. And on the last day of the retreat, we had our last interview, and he came in and said something really interesting. He said, and I already knew this, that he all for years in his practice had been um, paid a lot of attention to um, being very precise and accurate in his mindfulness. That was very important to him, and that's how he practiced. And he said, uh, in these days since I did the compassion practice, that's happening. He said, but it used to, I used to experience that precision coming from, from here, my brain, he said. He said, now, since that experience with the compassion, I am experiencing that precision, that mindfulness, but it's coming from here. And he said, it's completely different. It was a beautiful kind of opening. So we don't have to have or look for some terrible kind of suffering uh, to find compassion. Compassion, as I said before, is part of our own essential nature. Love, kindness, these, these are what we're made of. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhism calls it the great innate perfection. And we come to spiritual practice to unveil what's already here, to find our way back to that greatness of heart. So in this practice, when we are doing Vipassana meditation, we're practicing moment to moment letting go. And when we're letting go of some grasping to a story, some aversion, when we're really 
when we really do let go in a moment, what remains when there's not grasping and aversion is this natural state of our heart, this openness of heart. So as we practice, as we develop in our meditation, as we deepen our mindfulness, the compassion naturally deepens. And you probably are noticing this and will over the week, even if you're not trying. Just You just find more and more sense of connection with everything. In the practice that we're doing with the mindfulness, we begin, uh, we, we're paying close attention to seeing life as it is, and we see many different truths about life. We see that things change, and we see impermanence. We also experience through this practice that there is an underlying interconnection in everything. That we are interrelated, interconnected with all beings. So that starving child on TV is our starving child, or, or that Newt Gingrich or whoever, you know, Jerry Farrell, our friend Newt, you know, we're, con- <laughs> we're connected, you know, our buddy Saddam or whatever. So through practice, we also um, learn to see, to pay attention to, the conditions that lead to suffering. And I'll read what is now a classic poem. Um, If you didn't hear it at a Dharma talk, you might have heard it on the internet or in a college class. I mean, this by Thich Nhat Hanh has covered the planet, and you'll see why. I'm just going to read a few lines of it. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. So please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and all my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and my pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so that I can wake up and the door of my heart can open, the door of compassion." So you can feel why that is a classic now, it's because it's true. It reminds us of something that we know. It helps us feel that truth, that compassion embraces everyone without exception. And that last phrase is very, it's a very big thing for us humans to get around. 
and we don't have to put ourselves through guilt because we're not there yet. We can just know that is the heart of the Buddha, that is the, the true nature, has a compassionate quality that embraces everyone without exception. That one is actually bigger than the mind. So this is not a passive acceptance of uh, a lot of actions that are unacceptable. I don't need to name them. It's not a passive acceptance of the rapist, for instance. But in practice, we take the time, we put in the energy to look into the conditions that led that pirate to be able to do the harm. And it comes out in the poem. The Dalai Lama says, um, many Chinese soldiers have committed horrific atrocities to children, to nuns, to old people, to monks. He said, when I think of what it must be like in the heart and the mind of those soldiers, how can I feel anything but compassion? Forgiveness again, Yom Kippur. The practice of compassion is a steep assignment. It really asks us to look very deeply what is underneath that. But not to use that looking so, oh, they did it because of that. It's some sort of a avoidance of actually touching the pain, but actually to open our heart to everyone. So the path taught and modeled by the Buddha was to cultivate compassion not only inside our heart but in action. The Buddha was known to go when people were sick and and take care of them if no one was taking, you know, it was just you alleviate suffering where you can. You do what you can do to help beings. So compassionate action is different for every person. It may be how we relate to the shut-in elder down the street, just in how we say good morning to her, or think of them, you know, if something happens, if it's a storm, if the electricity is out, you know, it can be very simple. It may be as dramatic as sitting in the tree like Julia Butterfly, you know, or being at a big activist march, but it may be as simple as doing what that man did in Ladakh with Gary, just sitting beside him while he vomited. You know, compassionate action is shows up in all different forms. The Dalai Lama again says that love and compassion are not extras, they're not luxuries. Uh, as I said earlier, This evening he said, without them, our world will not survive. And it's easy to see that we can look around and know how that's true. We we don't even have to look far at all to see places, people, organizations, institutions, families, countries that need less cruelty and more compassion. We, We know that. And, but it's a, it's a fun question, like what if compassion and kindness became the guiding principles for um, 
multinational corporations or the advertising industry? You know, what would happen? I know it's actually funny to think of. Would there even still be an advertising industry? Maybe. What if government policies on the homeless or on education were based on caring for each other? I mean, really caring. Caring for the suffering of others. So it's easy, very easy, for us to think of um, the self-concerned and the greedy and the, the mean as those you know, the political and corporate bad guys out there, maybe some bad girls too. But by sitting in retreat, we realize that these forces are in every one of our hearts. These, excuse me, forces of, of greed and cruelty. And we start the work, the crucial work, of bringing more compassion into our world by bringing compassion to ourself in the most difficult times and places where we, the last place that we think uh, of giving ourselves compassion is usually the place that is the most important. Last night Sally mentioned how we'll be sitting, maybe we'll see something in ourselves that is horrible, you know, and some form of greed or something. We don't want to see it. And our immediate response, as she said, is to judge ourselves. And we know we can be brutal to ourselves. We also know, intellectually know, that meeting these inner forces with judgment, with more aversion, only makes matters worse. So, of course... We know what the work is. We just keep saying the same thing over and over. At least I've had to hear it over and over. We meet it instead with kindness. What would happen? What would happen? A really hard thing to see, for instance, is greed. And if you are fortunate enough to actually see your greed, I mean, we usually don't see greed. We just we just are greedy, you know what I mean? It's not exactly something we like to be mindful of. We like to think we're right and we need that more money or whatever. But to actually sit here and experience greed, what if I sit here and allow myself to be present with this? What's it feel like in my body? What's it feel like in my mind? What do I learn as I be present with greed instead of pushing it away or hating myself? We're not talking about acting on it. Almost always what you're going to find is fear under greed. You know, I want more money, I want more power because I feel so unsafe, because I want, I feel so vulnerable. I want to cover all that up. So if we sit deeply, if we really become present, we really pay attention to, for instance, greed, and if we could hold that, the greed in ourselves, the fear in ourselves, with compassion, what would happen? What would happen? You can feel it happening even just at the thought of it. 
Compassion melts separation. Compassion brings us back into connection with a heart that is greater than fear. You can feel how the willingness to practice compassion, sitting here in a moment-to-moment way, you don't have to do a whole sitting, it can just be a few moments of meeting a moment of of anger, maybe fear with uh, some kindness, you can begin to sense that is an offering to our world. It's an important offering to our world. So part of the spiritual path is the commitment, not just sort of a vague idea, but a real serious commitment to cultivate compassion, to practice the practice. When I come into contact with suffering of myself or someone else, can I ask, can I open to this? And if I can't open this to it, can I be kind to myself about that? You know, it's not, this is not about pushing ourselves to somewhere we're not out of some holy idea. But we can have this commitment, this intention to begin to cultivate the heart of compassion. All over the world, there are people in different spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, that do daily chants and prayers that remind them that they have made the commitment to cultivate compassion. Um, the again, I said I quote the Dalai Lama a lot. This intention or the motivation to get up and go into the world today, can I cultivate compassion today? Um, is something that the Dalai Lama does, as we I imagine we all know. He gets up and does hours of practices, different kinds of practices, cultivating wisdom and compassion, um, and a little part of one of the prayers that he recites every day is for all times until all suffering is ended in all worlds and for all beings may I be the food for those who are hungry may I be the medicine for those who are sick may I be the bridge for all to cross freedom. And I just want to offer you this, what would it be if every morning, maybe before you go to work or right before you sit, or you could light a little candle or you could have something written, what would it be like if every morning, even something that short, if you reminded yourself, oh yeah, part of what I'm doing in this life and maybe a lot of lifetimes is the commitment to open the heart of compassion. And because it's such a challenging thing for us humans, because we have this tendency to close, it's very useful to have some sort of repetition, something that really gets it from the background into the foreground of our awareness. 
So I'll finish tonight with a quote from Albert Einstein. He says, being human is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate, separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So let's just sit for a few moments. On this night where we join with millions and millions around the world working to open our hearts to life. May we have the great courage, the great strength of heart to open our hearts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.